All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series, produced in partnership with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Hello and welcome to Landmark Cases. This is the first of 12 historic Supreme Court cases we'll be looking at this season. McCullough versus Maryland is our case tonight. And for the next 90 minutes, we'll learn more about this significant case and the people and issues behind it and why it's so important in our American history process. Later on, we'll take your calls. We'll also take your questions on Facebook and Twitter and make you a part of this conversation. We have two guests at the table tonight to help us understand what McCullough versus Maryland is all about. Let me introduce them to you. Barr Peterson teaches at UVA Law School and once clerked for Justice Stephen Breyer. And Mark Killenbeck teaches law at the University of Arkansas. He's the author of a book about this case, McCullough v. Maryland, Securing a Nation. Welcome to both of you. So the first question, of course, is why does this belong on the list of landmark cases? Well, one of the uh, most dominant controversies in the interpretation of the Constitution then and now is whether we should read the document primarily as a limitation on government or whether it's a grant of power. And in this landmark case, uh, Chief Justice Marshall intervened in the controversy in two ways. First, he held that the federal government and Congress is not limited to the specific uh, powers listed in the document, but instead has an, an access to a broad range of what's called implied powers in order to effectuate those ends. And second, he continued a campaign that he pursued throughout his tenure on the Supreme Court of um, asserting that the Supreme Court was not only the dominant interpreter of federal law for the federal government, but also that, that he and the Supreme Court could say what the law meant even when, by doing so, they disagreed with the ruling of the highest court of a state. Um, and that was really the dominant controversy of the time, and so it was quite important. Mark Killenbeck, uh, you've written a book about it, so you obviously think it's still significant. But why should people 200 years after this decision in this country still care about this case? Well, the, the case provides a series of very important foundations for the way things operate today. One of them is this notion of the ability of Congress to do that which is necessary and proper uh, to effectuate the constitutional compact that was entered into between nation and states. Uh, one of the other ones that people don't talk about as much is Marshall's conception of the relative roles of the court and Congress. Judgments about policy, about what is necessary, are judgments that are going to be left to the Congress. This is part of the formulation that is central to the case, let the end be legitimate with all means which are plainly adapted, uh, et cetera, consist with letter and spirit. That deference to congressional judgments about what is good policy is, is a very, very significant factor. Uh, the other thing that, that enters in here is, is that Marshall's willingness to sustain the Bank of the United States at a point in time in American history when it was a loathed institution. Uh, people just did not like it at all. It was 
uh, the Panic of 1819, 3 million out of 9 million people in economic dire straits. It was an act of judicial courage to put the bank on, a, on square footing at precisely the moment that they did. And part of what made it makes cases landmark cases is not just the rules they articulate, but the circumstances within which they're decided. Well, let's spend a little bit more time on those circumstances. America in 1819, James Monroe was president. What else should people know about the country at that time? Well, um, during the War of 1812, um, it, it, the war created inflation, as wars tend to do. And um, that inflation was exacerbated by a rash of new banks opening. And the way banks worked back then was they would hold in their vaults a certain amount of silver or gold currency, and they would issue notes uh, that stood for $1 worth of, of, of hard currency or $10 worth of hard currency. And they'd say, here, take this paper money. You can use it as if it were hard cash, and anyone can bring it back at any time and redeem it for gold or silver. Um, but without regulation, banks like that started issuing much, much more paper than they could back up in their vaults. And as a result, um, inflation just went wild. At the same time, there was a, a great demand for American commodities like wheat and cotton in Europe. Um, and the bubble just got bigger and bigger. Uh, it, was, it was primed to burst. Uh, and it, unfortunately, it did um, for a range of factors, including the, the conclusion of the war of the Napoleonic Wars in Europe um, meant that demand for American products wasn't quite as strong. Um, but the bank actually hurt it quite a bit as well. Um, the bank uh, had a debt coming due. It had to pay back the bonds uh, that the United States Treasury had issued in order to purchase the Louisiana Territory. And they could only pay back those bonds in silver. Uh, and so in order to pay it, they had to suddenly start going to each of these state banks and saying, we hold some of your paper. Give us um, the, the requisite amount of hard currency. And that started forcing closures across the country. And closures led to, led to personal bankruptcies and uh, the whole system collapsed. So why was the, the bank, the second bank, loathed? Well, there were, one reason was the perception that the bank had a key role and was perhaps even the main uh, source of the Panic of 1819. Uh, the history is mixed on, on how much it actually did cause. But the other one was that at precisely the moment all of this is happening, uh, the rumors of corruption and uh, uh, theft and misrepresentation on the part of the bank, in particular the Baltimore branch of the bank, were coming to a head. And so Congress put together a committee in December of 1818 that issued a report in January of 1819 and basically documented that the bank, and in particular the Baltimore branch, was terribly corrupt, terribly inefficient, uh, and simply not an, an institution that you would rather, that you would trust. Uh, and all of this was coming out at precisely the same point that the case was being set up to be argued uh, before the Supreme Court in February. So the case centers around uh, the, uh, the second bank of, of, of the United States, particularly the Baltimore branch. And it is really over, as you both alluded to, issues that had been at the heart of the debate ever since the founding, really, state supremacy versus the federal uh, supremacy. So this became kind of a proxy for that continuing discussion, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. And um, one of the reactions that states around the country uh, had to the panic of, of 1819 was to pass laws designed to drive the bank out of their territory. Um, Maryland's law was actually one of the milder forms. Uh, 
it's arguable that Maryland just wanted to raise revenue. Um, but other states like Ohio, um, which would end up in litigation um, after McCullough v. Maryland, uh, passed a statute requiring the bank to pay $50,000 of, of hard cash uh, per year for each bank branch that was open in the state. And those kinds of laws were designed to drive the bank out of, of the state entirely. And so the question was really joined there. Um, does the federal government have the power to charter corporations within state boundaries? Um, should states have the right to say what kinds of institutions are meddling in their economies and, and competing with their own institutions? Um, if not, what are the, the sovereign powers um, that the states thought that they had reserved in the Constitution? What are they really worth? So we've established the issues. Now let's talk in a sort of high-level sense, because we'll get into it more uh, deeply later on, the players in this. First, James McCullough. Who was he? James William McCullough was a uh, relatively young man at that time. He was a veteran of the War of 1812 who had been uh, wounded at the Battle of Bladensburg, went back to Baltimore and hooked up with uh, some locals, became the cashier of the, which was the head administrative officer of the Baltimore branch. And in that position, he saw an opportunity, and the opportunity was to uh, get rich, to exploit his position. Uh, and he formed a partnership with two other individuals to engage in self-dealing in terms of the sale of the stock of the bank. Uh, and he also advocated for the bank to be very aggressive in its policies. Uh, the first bank from eight, had been very conservative, and because of its conservatism had been a, a big success from... 1791 to 1811. The, the new bank comes into existence in 1817. It starts out with a relatively conservative set of policies. The president of the bank at that time, William Jones, was a very weak individual. And McCullough was pushing for the bank to be even more uh, aggressive and expansive and was a force in terms of getting the, 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 the things where they ended up with the the, the corruption and the problems of the hair. So he was self-dealing in in this process, basically a crook, as you would describe him later on in your in your in your book. Uh, but this case is not about that. Uh, no. Did he ever face justice on the terms of, of self-dealing? Eventually, he uh, the, they had an initial attempt to try in 1821. Then in 1823, in what they called the conspiracy cases, uh, his attorneys did a very savvy thing. They put the bank on trial rather than him and his partners. And by raising the issue of the bank as this evil force, uh, this intruder in the states, this alien presence, they were able to get uh, McCullough acquitted, at which point he then embarked on a very successful political career. Another character we'll be hearing about is Daniel Webster, a famous name in American history. But what was his role in this particular case? Well, Daniel Webster is one of the most famous lawyers in American history because he came again and again before the court to argue some of its most important cases. And he was a lawyer that um, the court and Americans looked to to help expound what the Constitution meant. Um, so he, this was a, an incredibly interesting and important um, session of the Supreme Court. And he appeared several times, arguing not just McCulloch v. Maryland, but also a few months before um, the Dartmouth College case. Let's get into the case itself. So as you implied, Maryland wanted to tax the bank. And how did it get to the Supreme Court? Uh, well, Maryland passed this tax. Um, it was an interesting kind of tax, a very common 19th and late 18th century tax. It was a stamp tax. And it's the same kind of tax that Americans um, protested against in the Stamp Act right before the Revolution. 
That is, Maryland uh, issued paper that was a little bit costly. It was, you know, five cents for this piece, ten cents for that piece, and said you can you can issue notes, uh, that is, bank notes, dollars, but you can only issue them on these uh, expensive papers, and that's how the tax operated. Uh, 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 McCullough, as cashier, refused to use that paper. He just continued to issue notes on the regular uh, paper he'd always been using, and so he triggered the penalties. He refused to pay the penalties, and that's what brought uh, the case to Maryland District Court. And how did it get from Maryland District Court to the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, it went to the Maryland Court of Appeals, which uh, affirmed the validity of the Maryland tax, and then they brought it, what they called a writ of error to the Supreme Court in uh, September of 1818. And the court took up jurisdiction of the case and set it for argument in the term that began the following February. And one of the things that uh, Richard Ellis, an extraordinarily good historian, discovered during his own research on this case was this was almost certainly a contrived case. He found some uh, information in terms of a statement by the governor of Maryland saying that basically they set this up precisely to test the constitutionality of the bank. Uh, and this is not unheard of in American history, but it was a, it's an, again, post-writing of my book, uh, interesting uh, insight into the bank was a significant issue. It had been a significant issue since 1791, and people wanted to resolve this question. They wanted it settled, whether or not there was constitutionality of a of a federal or national bank. Right. Well, in 1819, the Supreme Court was just moving into new space inside the U.S. Capitol building, which had been burned during the War of 1812. And uh, we're going to learn more about the spaces in which that early Supreme Court operated here in Washington. It was in this chamber where such landmark cases as Dred Scott versus Sanford and the United States versus the Amistad would have been heard, argued, and presented to the court. Walking into the chamber to watch McCullough versus Maryland, visitors would have seen a room that had just been refurnished following the fire of 1814. The walls would have been painted, new draperies would have been procured, a new carpet put down, new window cornices installed, what is really neat about this space is how intimate the setting is. The arguments would have been open to the public. The arguing attorneys, the petitioner, and the respondent would have been in a lower recessed area. This space, dark, damp, and likely cold in February of 1819, would have been a daunting environment to have been in to present an argument to the Supreme Court. This is where Daniel Webster and the uh, other attorneys would have argued their cases before John Marshall in the Supreme Court in February of 1819. The arguments in McCulloch v. Maryland lasted for uh, nine days. In 1819, the, each of the counsel would have had um, a great deal of freedom to speak uninterrupted and to lay out their case uh, before the justices. The court uh, convened at 11 a.m. that morning and would usually adjourn sometime around 2 or 3 o'clock, depending on how long um, the uh, arguments went. Uh, usually there was a restriction of two lawyers per side in a case, but the Supreme Court waived that requirement so that each side had three attorneys, and each attorney was able to speak up to three days. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. Those are beautiful spaces inside the Capitol, and you can still visit them when you go on tour in the building here in Washington. So the Supreme Court at the time had seven justices, and uh, the chief justice, as we mentioned, was John Marshall. He's often referred to as the great chief justice. He was not the first. He was the fourth. Why does he get that description? 
Because when he became Chief Justice, uh, he made a, a, a decision to put the court in its what he viewed as its proper place. Uh, when uh, Oliver Ellsworth resigned uh, as Chief Justice uh, during the last months of, of Adams' administration, he turned initially to John Jay to be the next Chief Justice. In fact, John Jay was confirmed, and then uh, Adams sent a letter to Jay saying, you're the new Chief Justice, and uh, Jay said, no, thank you, I'm not the least bit interested, because when I was on the court, it, was, it didn't do anything that was worth doing. Marshall comes in in 1801, determined to have the court assume its rightful place, uh, particularly in the light of the transition from the Federalists uh, under the Adams administration to the Democratic Republicans or Republicans of Thomas Jefferson. And progressively, beginning with Marbury in 1803, he carved out a place to say the Supreme Court matters. It is going to be the expositor of what the Constitution means. And McCullough is one of the one of the very critical steps in this protracted process of securing for the Article Three federal judiciary a, a meaningful role in American government. Our current uh, Chief Justice has uh, talked about this case, and in an interview he gave to C-SPAN, we're going to listen to what he had to say about it next. He really was the first person to take the job seriously. Uh, most lawyers, I think, uh, have this image of him as the first chief, but he wasn't. He was the fourth. Uh, the three before him, though, uh, each only served for a couple of years, uh, didn't regard the court as an important uh, institution, uh, in fact spent most of their time doing other things. Uh, the first Chief Justice, John Jay, of course, is most famous for a treaty he negotiated with, uh, uh, with the English. But John Marshall saw the role of the Chief Justice and the court quite differently. He took the job seriously, he served in it for uh, three decades, uh, and he's responsible for establishing the principle that the court uh, has the authority and responsibility to review acts of Congress for constitutionality. So he really established the court uh, in a prominent position as one of the three co-equal branches of government. So here's what the court looked like with those seven members in addition to Chief Justice John Marshall who was an Adams, President Adams appointee, also Bushrod Washington, uh, a relative of the first president, an Adams appointee. There were three Jefferson appointees, William Johnson, Henry Livington, and Thomas Todd, although he was ill and didn't participate in this particular case, and two Madison appointees, Gabriel Duval and Joseph Story. What does that mean for the ideological discussions that court would have been having? Well, um, one of the special things that Chief Justice Marshall did in order to set the court on its path to greatness was to make sure that the justices lived together while they were in session and had the deep discussions that were necessary in order to come to a consensus about what uh, the opinion should look like. And because of that, even though there were justices appointed by different administrations, there was remarkably little dissension on the court. Uh, he was able to issue the majority of his opinions uh, in one voice. And uh, in addition to Daniel Webster, who argued the case for Maryland? Uh, Luther Martin, the Attorney General of Maryland, who was a, a very good attorney. Uh, was the was the last one from Maryland. I'm going to start blocking on names. Walter uh, Jones. Walter Jones, a uh, private attorney engaged by them. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going blank on the no, third. Uh, so, um, so, and then there was um, uh, Joseph Hopkinson. Hopkinson, yeah. Right, who was co-counsel with, um, with Daniel Webster in the Dartmouth College case. And the interesting thing about this bar um, 
then as now, there were a select few lawyers who argued before the Supreme Court bar, and they really knew each other personally mm -hmm. and professionally. Uh, so, for example, William Wirt, who argued for um, the, the Bank of the United States, had been the government's prosecutor in the Aaron Burr trial for treason. And Luther Martin, the former Constitutional Convention delegate from Maryland, had been Aaron Burr's defense attorney. Uh, so these men came together again and again. In his book, uh, People's History of the Supreme Court, Peter Irons says about the Attorney General of the State of Maryland, Luther Martin, had reportedly argued the Fletcher case 10 years earlier in a drunken state. Uh, and he was rumored to be inebriated during this McCulloch argument as well. Drunk or sober, Martin was a skilled orator. Do you know any more about that aspect of his personality? It, it's absolutely clear. He, he had a drinking problem. It was something that people openly discussed. It became uh, a significant impediment such that his last two or three years as Attorney General of Maryland were not terribly successful. Uh, and it, 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 it sped up his death. Yeah, uh, and toward the end of his life, he actually had to move into Aaron Burr's house. Um, and his old client took care of him in his waning years. Today, the Supreme Court gives attorneys one hour for both sides to argue the case before the court. They hear 70, 75 cases a year. Was nine days unusual back then? Uh, it was unusual even for the time. Uh, so usually the rule of the court was that each side could only bring two lawyers, and they restricted it to two days of argument each. Um, so each side in this very important case was allowed to bring three lawyers, they brought the best they could find. And uh, Luther Martin, uh, another fact, fun fact about him, um, was that even in his uh, heyday, even when he was at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, um, he was known to talk on for such length that everyone would get tired. And so he took up a full three days in his oral argument, and that was quite unusual. I wonder how the justices managed to process all of that information. Well, one of the interesting things about the court at that time, and it's in, it's in the press accounts, and the, the little little histories that we have at the time is they would basically sit there silently. There was not the give and take that typifies oral argument today. They would listen respectfully. Uh, they did not interrupt with questions. Uh, they were there to hear what the attorneys had to say. Now, part of that is the reality that they weren't doing formal written briefs. The, there were not these large quantities of printed materials submitted to the court. But the court treated the attorneys with respect. They listened to them. And... Uh, what was uh, working in that room like? I mean, the, were there people from the general public that could come and listen to the cases and absent any other form of entertainment? Was it popular for local people to come very, in? Very, very, very popular. It was one of the most popular forms of entertainment. Uh, there were, the social seasons in Washington were marked by certain things. And one of the social seasons in Washington was when the court convened in February and was in there for five to six weeks. And there was a constant parade of people coming in and listening. And Joseph Story talks about how during the uh, oral argument that the chamber was full. Uh, it, was a, it was very important to the city, both in terms of what the issues were and in terms of just the social scene in Washington. So uh, when these, two, these sets of lawyers were making the cases b before the Supreme Court, I'm going to ask you to sort of take each side. So what would McCullough's lawyers be arguing? They would be arguing that Congress did indeed have the power to, to, to create the bank. Uh, this was a debate that was initially joined in 1791. Uh, the first point that, the, that Maryland wanted to contest was whether or not the bank was a legitimate institution. Did Congress have the power to do so? It's not expressly mentioned in, Ar in Article I, Section 8. 
indeed, during the uh, Constitutional Convention, they rejected a clause that would have given uh, Congress the power to establish corporations. And so the very first thing they're going, that the, 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 the art attorneys for McCullough for the bank is going, are going to do is to say, no, they have the power to do this. And Maryland said? Well, Maryland said, look, um, in the Constitution, it specifically enumerates which taxes the states can't levy. They can't levy taxes on imports or tariffs. Um, that list presupposes that everything else is uh, free and open. That's, in fact, what the Tenth Amendment says. Uh, so uh, they had strong textual arguments. Um, as Mark said, they had strong arguments from the actual history of the convention that uh, Luther Martin, for example, was actually at. Um, and, uh, and by all accounts, they had some of the better legal arguments. Uh, this, this idea that the power to tax is a power to destroy, which was the argument that Daniel Webster floated um, for a reason why Maryland couldn't uh, tax the bank. Um, it, it's, it's, it's very dramatic, but it's not true. Uh, taxes are imposed on all kinds of things without destroying them, and it presupposed that there was no such thing as gradations of power um, to be shared between the states and the federal government. Um, how did Justice Marshall, after listening to nine days of these arguments, approach a decision with his other justices? Very quickly. Uh, oral argument ended on Wednesday. The decision was announced on Saturday. Uh, and there were some people who were very suspicious of this, thinking that he had already prejudged the case and it must have, must have written it up uh, in advance, except when you go through the decision with care, you see that he took pieces of the various arguments by the various attorneys up through and including Pinckney, uh, who was the last to argue. But part of what, as she noted earlier, they lived together, they were there working together, there is no doubt that they were being very careful about this case. And, thinking it through as the oral arguments unfolded. They obviously knew the country was watching this, so can, what more can you tell us about the process of getting to consensus? Uh, well, the, the process, the actual conversations that they had between each other um, are unfortunately lost time. Um, but it's clear that in the background, uh, Marshall was very keen to put federal power on the broadest possible basis. Uh, and so this this case was just one vehicle that allowed him to get there, to get to a vision of a, a American government that would be powerful enough to build the kind of interconnected, economically powerful society that he, he thought that America could be. Does it fall, uh, follow right out of Marbury? I mean, does it, can you see a, a line in reasoning of Marbury versus Madison? To there's McCullough? a line of, there's a series of cases from Marbury through you know, uh, uh, Bank of the United States versus DeVoe. United States versus Fisher, uh, Martin versus Hunter's lessee, where Marshall and his colleagues sequentially develop a theory of both the court and its role and the nation as a nation within which the federal government is going to, going to have a certain degree of supremacy in certain critical areas. And it will continue after McCullough uh, through the, a case called the Coens versus Virginia into Osborne versus the Bank of the United States into Gibbons versus Ogden where he continues this process of fashioning a vision of a strong central government that will act for the good of the nation, not simply in international affairs, but also in domestic affairs, which was a big reversal from the assumption that was running around when the Constitution was framed. Six justices heard the case, and the Chief Justice got them to a unanimous decision in this case. 
Uh, Samuel P. Morse uh, tweets, in Chief Justice Marshall's opinion, doesn't he effectively decide the issue before even discussing the necessary and proper clause? Seems as if the issue was decided with the, quote, ample powers require ample means line of the opinion. Uh, well, Chief Justice Marshall never used one tool where five would do. Um, <laughs> and that's actually something that's very useful about his opinions. Uh, they're so useful and they're, and they're so frequently cited uh, because you can go back to them again and again to find multiple avenues to get to the same conclusion. Uh, so, yes, he could have decided the, the case uh, with an opinion one-fifth the size. Um, but isn't it wonderful and delightful that he gave us so much more to work with? Mark Killenbeck, that three decades that he served means uh, quite a number of presidents. Were all of them in alignment with him about his vision of the federal government? Virtually, yes. I mean, there, there, are, there are so many cases, and what people, it's the same thing that's true today. Uh, the court will hear dozens and dozens of cases, only two or three of them in any given term are really significant constitutional cases. So a large part of, of what uh, Marshall did was, was kind of routine uh, legal things under various statutes and, 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 and enactments. But as you plot his chief justiceship, starting in 1801 and running through his death, there are case after case after case. Uh, it, it tails off after 1828, where it is absolutely clear that he is being very faithful to this vision of a federal government that has significant authority. And I think one thing that people don't, don't talk much about was Marshall was at Valley Forge. He was with George Washington in a situation where it was clear that letting the states do their own thing was not necessarily a good idea because you had a an army, a so-called army, that couldn't do what it needed to do because the states were not providing the supplies that were necessary. And there's 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 background parts of John Marshall's life that play a very important role in what eventually becomes his vision of the nation. You've both made reference to this particular passage from the decision, but uh, let's share it with our viewers. The power to tax involves the power to destroy that the power to destroy may defeat and render useless the power to create, that there is a plain repugnance in conferring on one government a power to control the constitutional measures of another, which other, with respect to those very measures, is declared to be supreme over that which exerts the control, are propositions not to be denied. Would you interpret that for us? It's basically if you open the door, then you run the risk uh, of having the, the power exercised. And so one of the arguments that's made is the Maryland tax was a, was a very small levy. It's actually more complicated than that, uh, but we need not go into that detail. But the notion is if you concede to the state a power to influence the operations of the federal government, then the states may ex might well exercise that in ways that are going to uh, cause severe impairment. It's actually the exact same argument that people made against the exercise of federal power. If you give the federal government the power, it will exercise it in ways that compromise the states. It's, it's a two-way street within which the federal government has the, has the ace in the hole or the, the ultimate club. It's called the supremacy clause. Right. And um, this seems like a disingenuous argument, but you have to remember that the federal government's ability to control what the states were doing with the specificity that it might be able to do today by withholding certain funds or engaging in negotiation, that simply wasn't available at the time. So there was a, an administrability problem, is what we lawyers call it. Um, how easy was it to communicate? How easy was it to set um, finer, more detailed rules? 
um, that's why a, a very strong role like what McCullough um, articulated might have been necessary. Well, you talked a bit before, Ms. Peterson, about the, the, the media at the time. Can you give us a sense of how it operated in this country? Uh, where newspapers were partisan. Who was reading them and how did they affect what was happening in the court and in the city? Oh, well, the short answer as to who was reading them was everybody. Um, newspapers would arrive at a, at a local tavern and, and people would just grab them and read them out loud. Um, uh, we're talking about an era in which Americans were incredibly literate and incredibly invested in the political life of the nation. Um, so uh, the specific newspaper debate that happened after McCullough um, involved uh, several men writing under assumed names, and that was pretty common at the time, uh, writing in order to disguise the fact that, for example, one of the major players was Spencer Roan, uh, the Chief Justice of, of Virginia's highest court. Um, and, and they wrote long excoriations of, of Marshall's opinion right next to where the opinion would be printed in the newspaper for everyone to see. So Chief Justice Marshall took exception to this, and as we learned, he uh, tried to do something about it by authoring his own editorials. What did he do? He actually, the, the first set of uh, very negative uh, edit articles were written by a colleague of Spencer Roan's, and then Marshall wrote two essays in response that were published, at which point Roan wrote his, and then John Marshall, again under a pseudonym, wrote a series of nine essays that appeared in the, in the newspapers defending the opinion. And this is, this is something that people today would, would view with just extraordinary alarm, the notion that perhaps Chief Justice John Roberts, in the wake of the Affordable Care Act, might write his own pseudonymous essays defending what he did with regard to tax versus penalty. It's just unheard of, but it was something that, 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 that both the opponents of McCullough and the supporters of McCullough for felt perfectly free to do. Here's a sample of what Chief Justice John Marshall penned in a local Washington area newspaper, the Alexandria, Virginia Gazette, June 30th, 1819, defending, but he did it under the name of Friend of the Constitution. He wrote, great constitutional questions are unavoidably brought before this department, which it requires no inconsiderable degree of mental exertion to comprehend and which may, of course, be grossly misrepresented. Okay, it sounds pretty defensive as you're reading that. Yes, and um, I think that it's, it's clear that he was on the defensive. He felt, unlike today, the court was not in a position of high regard in, in, in American culture. It, didn't, it hadn't achieved that, that austerity and that respect um, in society that it has today. And he really felt that after he had authored this McCullough opinion, that the rest of the federal government should have thanked him and should have done the job of going into the press mm -hmm. and writing these editorials that he thought were so important to defend the justice and the validity of his decision. When no one rushed to do that for him, he decided to take it upon himself, but he, he did it under a pseudonym and he was very careful to make sure that nobody knew it was him. So how did we find out that it was him? Eventually, the research was done by Gerald Gunther, uh, who... Uh, Actually, there were people who did know, story knew, for example, at the time, but it was not, it was not widely known. And eventually, Gerald Gunther, who was an extraordinary scholar and, and teacher, uh, published a volume, uh, Marshall's Defense of McCullough versus Maryland, where he assembled the, the Brock and Bra, the uh, Spencer Roan, and the, and the John Marshall essays, and published them around, I think, 1960 or so. And uh, 
it was it was a big coup. Thanks to both of you for being our inaugural guests in this series of Landmark Cases and for helping us understand the history and the importance of McCullough v. Maryland. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank and, you. And to our viewers, thanks for being with us for this uh, first of 12 programs. And a special thanks to our partners at the National Constitution Center for their assistance in uh, putting this whole series together this year. Thank you.